Hey everyone, welcome to episode 90 of the So This Is My Wife podcast. I'm your host and producer, Lingya. And before we begin, I wanted to experiment with a slightly new format for the show as we're approaching the big 100 episode. At the start of each episode, I'm going to be sharing a little fun thing that I found on the internet. I cover this in greater depth in my weekly newsletter, which if you haven't already checked out, do subscribe. You can find it in the show notes. But the little thing I found is this app called Blind. What's really interesting is that it markets itself as the honest LinkedIn. Why? Because it's a place where employees can gather to chat about their company and other companies as well, anonymously. Conversations are mostly centered around companies in the States and seem to consist primarily of software engineers earning a TC of $300,000 and working in a fan company. But some of these topics they do talk about are pretty applicable across the board. Things like when will LinkedIn lift its hiring freeze? Which offer should I choose? The highest paying companies based in Austin. Just join a new startup and match with one of the co-founders on Bumble. Do you regret joining Robinhood? And finally, should I go from working at Google to an MBB? So as you can see, pretty fascinating topics and a lot of conversation about conversation. Enough to make me think, gosh, I really joined the wrong industry, didn't I? Should have picked up computer science at university. And now that's the end of our fun little thing. Let's turn to today's guest. I think a uh, large majority comes from luck. Just being at the right place at the right time and things just fall through by itself, by chance. That's definitely one thing I attribute for. Like, like the right industry itself makes sense already. I think the other thing regarding work would be staying in the game as long as possible. So I think one of the things that we've been doing in order to capitalize on that luck, appear at the right timing, at the right time, as many occasions as possible to just keep doing what you're doing, stick to it, don't worry about what's going to happen too far down the road, just think about the day-to-day, just stay alive and you know later, if, if your teaching is correct, the, the opportunity will fall onto your side. So it's definitely going to be some hard work, maybe 20%, to at least open yourself to the opportunity and then 80% luck. So like, put your launch pad in terms of the outcome and the impact that you're looking for. Today's steamy guest is T.M. Lee, the co-founder and CEO of CoinGecko, which is one of the world's largest crypto data aggregators. And in case you didn't know, T.M. is a Malaysian. Now, I love covering startup founder stories. So if that's up your alley, stick around. In this episode, TM shares how he and his co-founder Bobby turned CoinGecko from a site hustle with a starting capital of $100 to one of the world's largest crypto data aggregators. They also share why they launched CoinGecko straight after the collapse of Mt. how they got developers to work for CoinGecko for free to integrate 30 exchanges in CoinGecko at the start, why CoinGecko doesn't offer subscription service, why they're offering the API for free forever, deciding what tokens to list, how they tripled their users from 50 to 150 million in 2021, and so much more. So are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. Grew up in a middle-income family. Never really surrounded myself with family members who were you know, running businesses and stuff like that. So, Getting at this point, like running a company, running a business is something that is very far deviated from how it was like when I was a kid. So I think like back then, the, the general sentiment was like, you know, get a good grade, get a good, a good school, get a good job, and then, you know, things will just sign out by itself. But I think what happened was when I was a teenager, my brother influenced me into getting involved in programming. So that was where I got really interested into computers. How did so your brother influence you into getting into programming? What was he doing? I think he was also studying computers. 
my brother also like showed me some flash animation that at the time the actual moment for flash animation that people were creating cartoons, games, part like that he was showing me how is it possible you can create like all this interactive uh, experience on the internet. I got my hands onto it and just tried creating some cartoons and that kind of opens up the possibility that you can just create anything on, on the computer screen. So I'm not an animator, I'm not an artist, but that opens up the window to it. Being very curious about programming and then picked up books, looking at videos, tutorials, and, and slowly when college, I was kind of followed by what's happening in the Web 2.0 movement. People went, Reddit, they, Twitter, I think Facebook at the time was also like about launching and it kind of shows like how it is possible for anyone to just create something and put it on the internet and be used by millions of people. And that itself solved a problem and also we just very little capital to be able to create something of value and that opens up my thought process on, you know, maybe this is something that I would want to study in college and then come out and do something similar as well in the space. You mentioned Dick, which is co-founded by Kevin Rose. Isn't he someone that deeply influenced you when you were growing up? Yeah, I mean, they did quite a bit because I was also watching this TV program called Tech Theory. It was on cable TV here and he was hosting a variety show called Speed Saver, if I recall correctly. And he came out and, and did this eventually. And that also kind of reinforcing that what I just mentioned earlier that anyone can just work on something, right? I've got a cool idea. You want to democratize access to news and right, stuff like that. And you can just put it on the internet and people are using it. So that is one instance that he was able to go and accomplish this inside. I've been following how he has found that startup as well. And that's what impressed a lot in how I look at ideas get formed from just an idea into like a full batch company. Wasn't Jason of Basecamp also someone who deeply influenced you as well? Yeah, that came when I was actually attending in college. There were a lot of startup ideas and things like that. And I think it was also pivotal because I picked up Ruby on Rails as a programming language, which happened to be founded by David Heidemann Hansen, who is the co-founder at Basecamp and business partner at Gates 3. And while doing that, it's quite natural for you to watch a lot of PHH, which is his other name, um, doing like talks and screencasts about the idea about how Basecamp was run. And that naturally got me to something like they got about, you know, their, their books and their upwards. They write a lot on the drop and how to run a business, how to write software. They really are not there and they really democratize all this information out there. It was quite eye-opening because when you look at tech startup and then they go for an exit, or an acquisition or stuff like that, and then they're to go and do something else. But the thought process from the base camp founder was, if you have one idea that's really good, you want to work on it for the next 10 to 15 years. And if you focus on profitability first, then you have the flexibility to maybe raise money if you need to, or run the business the way you'd be like it because it is a business that you want to see growing rather than chasing trends or, or raising money. So at the time, I was looking for ideas for what to build. And that seems to be one model that you could potentially latch on. Coming up with an idea, going to pitch it in better, and then you get a zero or one kind of outcome. You can totally just keep your idea and, and get a couple of people who are interested in what you're building. If you can find a way to charge customers, I'll build the customer they're willing to pay you for it. Then you've got your business going. You can take your profit and reinvest back into the company and just slowly go it there. It doesn't have to be like a big serve like hundreds of thousands of customers from day, day one or day two. As long as you can serve a small group of audience, you've got product market fit. I think that's a good start and, and you get organic into a part of there which can last uh, a long time. So I think that difference in mindset and how to run a business was quite refreshing compared to what the typical venture capital path and that also influences what we do eventually. It sounds like while you were studying at Purdue University, while you were doing computer science, you were also trying a lot of different startup ideas as well. So what were some of the things that you were getting involved in? What were your lessons from that? 
Yeah, I think the funny thing was, I'm interested in computers, but I did ended up studying in California. I ended up in West Lafayette, Indiana. Is there a story behind that? I mean, of all places. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I think what happened was I applied to a couple of schools and then uh, Purdue got back to me first and then, okay, I was just going to go there. And I think they have a pretty good uh, computer science program, living off research on that. But I think it didn't really occur to me that maybe you want to be in the valley as well, so when you approach it to the ecosystem. When I look at the web 2.0 movement again, like all these topics are available on the internet. I never thought I'd have to be in the center of the thing to really experience it. I could really learn and experience and build things even through the internet, right? So when I was in, in, in Purdue University, like, I couldn't find like-minded people who a lot of them were just like, you know, going through the college stuff. But I happened to be able to find a pretty small community of builders in the city. Uh, so I think I did attend a couple of meetups, you know, with them. I even interned with all the company and, and they all had this mindset of, you know, let's build something and, and how I kind of got my on-the-field experience by working with all these people. And I think my, I met a couple of friends as well at the time and we started to try to build something, right? We wanted to build a flag search aggregator and, and see where they can go. I think you never really thought like whether it was for this is a business. Again, we have this builder mindset. I was going to build a solution, three product out of that and scale it across a group audit and then see what happens after that. But in hindsight, obviously a little bit of on how things should be done in the next stage would definitely be helpful. But I guess it's all just part and parcel of, of a learning stage as I go through this. Was it one of the lessons when you were doing all these startups was that you learned the importance of evaluating your business partners? So what was the story behind that and how do you evaluate a business partner? It goes back to talking about what's the next step, right? I think those conversations need to happen and there needs to be an alignment to some extent on what will happen when we get to that stage. Are we aligned or do you see it differently? I think that's why some companies where co-founders decided to, to speak with you, right? Because they couldn't come to that consensus. Especially early stage, I think that's like, that's to that happening in first stage because we want to at least go through it for the next like four or five years or, or as long as possible. I think the other one is also like finding out a skill set. So one of the things that I, I saw that do with Bobby eventually, who we co-founded Pagetto eventually, was before we even co-founded Pagetto, put each other to a test. Like, are we really serious about this field? Are we able to also say that, like, you know, I say I can do programming, he said he can do marketing and, and sales and stuff like that. So both of us do our individual project that are related to crypto. And then we started like, jamming about ideas separately. And eventually we come together and say, you know, both of us have things that we can do. I saw what we were able to do. He saw what I was able to do. And then we could you know, work together at, at one point you go at early stage. So I think two things, right? Be able to uh, assess skill sets that, that are complementary and also eventually the direction of the company will go if we're able to do this together in their alignment and try to get that alignment as soon as possible. So after you finished computer science, what was the thought process you think of staying in the States? Why did you come back to Malaysia? Interestingly, at a couple of options, I could work for a large software company, get my visa there somehow. And then the other option is to work for a startup, which I may not get a visa because they may not sponsor my visa, which is what I'm really, really interested in. Not to keep on working for a large software company, order to work for a small software firm so that I can learn everything from A to Z and be a generalist, right? Rather than working on something very specific. But long story short, I didn't manage to get any offers per se. I was not going to be able to run my own startup in the US because of the visa issue. So I had to go back to Malaysia and then figure out what I wanted to do next. There is a couple of these instances where I, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I still wanted to start something. So I was doing something on the side, but it kind of go nowhere. In the end, I just ended up trying out the usual path, right? Where you come back to Malaysia and then work for MNC or work for uh, a corporate company and, and see how things are. And then I tried that for a couple of months and I, I thought that it wasn't for me because the job scope was just very different than what I like to do, which is programming. So the other I decided to just leave and go to Singapore to join the startup work, going back to becoming a software engineer and see how I can contribute and also learn at the same time. 
So it sounds like while you were at the startup Rumo Rama, you never let that dream of doing your own startup die and you were trying many, many things on the side. So what were some of the side projects that you were involved in? I think when I was in Singapore, it was a good opportunity as well to also jam on ideas. I think on the side for me was learning how to run side projects. I think I did a lot of websites just to put a utility site and did like a dictionary site as well and things like that. Just to learn how to run a server, how to employ the production, how to solve bugs. And I think those are like really cooperative that slowly like builds up together. I think what was really interesting was I have all these side projects, all the great learning experience. If you want to do a test, like I think going back and getting inspiration from Again, JSFB and DHH on Basecamp, find a SaaS, solve a problem and, you know, get someone to pay you for it. So I started researching a little bit about payment providers in, in the region. This was like 2013. I, I don't think there was a brain tree or a strike yet in this region at the time. The only option for payment gateway was to use the local payment provider, which was really, really difficult. Uh, I remember calling one in Malaysia and they said that you're going to have half a million ringgit in your bank account or you need to be a full patch company or something like that to get the paperwork going. Uh, but I was just a uh, solo developer. I just wanted to test an idea, get things out there and, and see what happened. So in the end, never managed to really like pull through a set. I started researching a little bit about Bitcoin, mainly because I had some salary and I wanted to look at, you know, where I can put this to use, right? That got me learning about the history of money. I'm trying to find out like why people are putting so much value into Bitcoin. This time is sometime of 2013. That got me to understand like, okay, you got your history of money and how money it walk. So I understood how the technical side of, of Bitcoin kind of works through the white paper. And I thought like this kind of makes sense. When I saw like people were able to like pay someone globally, that kind of clicks to me that, you know, back then I've been struggling to find human providers to charge someone for a sales service. I could now use Bitcoin as a way to build my customer for goods or service that I want to provide. So that kind of clicks to me and that got me further down the Bitcoin rabbit hole uh, when I was in Singapore and I was quite fortunate that there was a pretty small community and Vida has like 20, 30 people. So going there and then meeting like right people to talk about Bitcoin was one of the pivotal moments for, for, for me. What were some of the conversations that you were having in this small group? I'm, I imagine you must have gotten to know each other very, very well. There's only so many of you. 80% of them were just talking about the prices of Bitcoin or, or how you use Bitcoin to do like remittance and, and all this sort of thing. No different from right now. <laughs> uh, no, no different from right now. But I think what was interesting to me was I found a couple of interesting guys over there that some like combine their technical skills because they are they're probably software engineers. So they combine their technical skills into with Bitcoin, where right? they either run their own local exchange or they run some sort of a brokerage service or they run some sort of uh, some sort of a software software solution that comes out of Bitcoin, POS or point of sales system and things like that. So I think that tricks with me, like okay, I know how to write software and, and growing only 20% or less of the world stuff on Bitcoin, that taught me that maybe this is like a niche space that I could do something, right? Paying attention to the Bitcoin ecosystem. I don't know exactly why, but that kind of clicks to me that maybe I should explore it further and start building something in this space. I try to see what's possible that can be built and maybe something related to what I've learned or experienced and go from there. How do you begin to learn how to build in this space? I mean, right now there's so much resources, but back then I imagine there was pretty much nothing. You were the pioneer. Yeah, there's not much resources. I would say that I'm not exactly like earlier, but I think there are people who came in in 2011, 2012. I think there's like zero resources. But I think I came in about 2013, 2013, so there were enough resources at any point. This just was just founded like six months ago. Uh, they had an API that you can play with. Well, the, the way I learned this was, okay, I was using Coinbase API to just like move Bitcoin around. And, and you know, you have to design it in such a way that it resembles how the Bitcoin blockchain kind of works. And then from there, I switched over to the Bitcoin blockchain and tried to replicate the, the same, the same experience as how Coinbase is providing the cloud service. One key product that, that I tried with this deal was a micropayment service. So going back again to the, the SaaS model was 
how can I touch anyone across globally? And at that time, it was only a Bitcoin thing. So one of the idea I had was, what if you put anything that is a soft copy of anything, right? Now, your music, your videos, your images or 3D renders, anything that you want to sell on the internet, instead of accepting PayPal or any other thing, why don't you just sell it in Bitcoin? I think I got like a couple of concessions going on there, a couple of users. They were all kind of wacky stuff that gets uploaded and music. 3D printing was a thing at the time. And there were a couple of micro concessions that were all going over there. So I think that sort of further validates that people want something easy that they can use. And again, going back to soft copy stuff, which relates back to what we are seeing NFT today, people really want to monetize software and they just need an easy way to do it. And cryptos enable that. Were you just openly sharing your interest in crypto, even though most people didn't know or didn't believe in this space? Yeah, I, I certainly did. And I think a lot of people think I'm, I'm crazy at the time, for sure. What happens was I, my child meet up with Bobby, which is heavily based in religion, kind of a lot. Like, like once you found someone who actually talks about Bitcoin the same wavelength as you, you can't really go like deep and talk about, you know, what's going to happen in the next two, three years, four years and expand through the state. And at the time, it was really, really difficult. No one was talking about it on Twitter. No one was talking about it anywhere. If the price goes out, the number of people can read up, goes up as well. And then when the price goes down, it then contracts. So really want to talk to people who are into the space, wanting to build stuff. Wasn't Bobby running his own crypto newsletter at the time? So he was also interested in that space already before he met you. Yeah. So I think what happened was a chance to meet Bobby through my old boss, a mutual friend, he's my CTO and he will go on my bed. And he said that you got that guy in Malaysia with the also interested in Bitcoin, why don't you guys have a chat? So I mean, here in Singapore, really briefly, I did like, okay, when I come into Malaysia, eventually, you know, let's try to do something up. The new setup that he did was one of those ideas that both of us did separately. So I was doing my propane and then he was working on this new setup to show that you get, like, to market out this new setup and get subscribers and things like that. So we sort of validated each other that, you know, we can actually do things and we're not just talking, we want to do this and we're not doing it. So he got like pretty good number of subscribers and I think that's good for him as well. He's also using the opportunity to like learn the space and learn a piece and out of all the different cryptocurrencies out there. And then we come together eventually, or both of us have different ideas and we just like jam and brainstorm a bunch of ideas and you know what we could build, like should we do mining together and skills, should we start an exchange? And eventually we landed up on running a data aggregator because we think that this is the one that both of us has an age in. If we were to start an exchange, very difficult because Bob is not exactly the kind of guy who wants to go and get licenses and things like that. We tried doing mining as a hobby and we thought that it was difficult to scale because Bob of us don't have the capital to like, start a mining farm and do the mining and scale for it to be meaningfully profitable. So went down and list and eventually landed on running data aggregation with pure software. And what was like in those early days trying to build a data aggregator? At, at the time, there were actually a couple of incumbents already out there. There are a lot of competitors that are doing like cryptocurrency data education. Selling for us coming here, we had to find a gap that's missing in the market. A lot of people were just talking about prices, prices, and prices. And there was again, all, that's what all the incumbents are doing, giving you all the prices, the market cap volume for all the cryptocurrencies that were available at that time. For us, after that bill of mount box that crashed, right? People are saying to look at, can we look at it beyond prices? And what is it that we can look at, evaluate uh, a potential of a cryptocurrency? People are not paying attention to developer activity. Like if, uh, if, if developers are actively pushing forward, to the crypto project, that means maybe the down the road, there's something going over there. How big the community is, oh, this was also when Dogecoin was launched, right? The technology was very simple. It was just a copy paste of what a Litecoin was. They put a very interesting marketing to it by putting a meme job on doing it. And then somehow a lot of people just go crazy and just don't mind keeping this, this project because it doesn't mean anything. It was just all fun, right? And that itself is also like one way it probably used to evaluate cryptocurrency. The other one is liquidity. We evaluate cryptocurrency and then was how point you have to kind of start 
basically we aggregate the data from all these different sources, all these code repository activity, social network, people are talking about uh, giving coin, how many subscribers, how many followers, integrity information, search, uh, search information, and then put it all in one place. And that's a version one of, of CoinGecko. So basically it's nothing to do with prices, but a place to look at all these metrics that a group of niche of people who are looking to get into that. You mentioned the crash of Mt. Gox. What is that and why is it so significant? Uh, Mt. Gox is a cryptocurrency exchange. More specifically, a Bitcoin exchange, but they don't do any other coin. They were the biggest exchange before the crash in 2014. I think they were doing like over 95% of the total volume. So what happened was the exchange was insolvent. There was a security loophole where Bitcoin was being drained from their wallet without the knowledge of the operators and stuff like that. And then everyone who kept their Bitcoin on Mt. Gox and just started trading over there, you know, collected today, I think there's no way that all the deposits could get their money back. And because Mt. Gox was so significant at the time, there were a lot of Bitcoin services, exchanges or brokerage. They were built on top of Bitcoin and all of them were also keeping funds on it. So you can imagine like you 95% of the total volume of Bitcoin or, or what have you completely wiped out from there. How all would the state uh, look like right now? So it was really, really again, and you saw the Bitcoin price falling from like 1000 $400, I think it had peak down to almost like twelve dollars um, at the time. So the moment that happened, people were very scared. Like, you know, Bitcoin still a thing, like it's the end of, of it. The people who, who decided to just leave and say that, like, you know, this is not how Bitcoin should operate. And they said, but I think there are good things that comes out of it. Again, it bounced back stronger after a significant episode like this. People started to put controls around exchange, like cool wallet, out wallet, audit processes. So I think every, every episode, like for example, Mount Gox becomes a lesson for everyone in the stage. Uh, especially for something that's so new like Bitcoin and crypto. Didn't you launch CoinGecko soon after the crash of Mt. Gox? What was it that kept you in that space rather than you thinking, okay, this is a bad idea. I should just flee before it's too late because you barely started. Obviously, I was shocked. There was my first period going to Bitcoin and suddenly I did this all happen. I've managed to speak to enough people and sort of like validated that, okay, uh, I didn't lose that much. I didn't have Bitcoin to begin with, right? So for me, was, I'm just looking at it as a state that maybe I can build something. Even after Mt. Gox fed, there were a lot of people trading, creating new projects, still debating about, you know, how they can make Bitcoin better, how they can launch a better coin and things like that. I think that ecosystem itself makes you think that maybe this stage will keep chugging along. Don't know where, don't know where, but there is some smart people in looking into things, like smart contracts, that's a good word, dream at the time. We didn't give up our job to do this. Like we basically treated it as a side project and we're just interested in the crypto. We really want to be involved in the space. And this is like one good way to continue being in queue and talk and meet with people in the crypto industry. I mean, the space is very small and we have a service that we're running with here. It just makes it easier that way to keep up with, with things rather than saying, I'm not going to work on this. I'll do something else and just keep an eye on it. But it's not the same thing as actually building something and having a stake in the industry. Given something like Mount Gods, surely the idea of trust would have been really prominent in people's minds. So do you have some kind of specific plan to gain trust among the community to say, hey, this is a legit project and we're not trying to do a fast one on you? Yeah, after, after Mount Gods had collapsed, uh, a lot of people sort of like, are very wary about keeping funds on the exchange. And then there's a lot of episodes of exchange getting hacked or cracked or whatever along that, that weird. People tend to still talk about, you know, uh, enlist in Bitcoin, you can still hold on to your asset easily, right? Unlike other traditional assets where, you know, you kind of need a third party to hold on to it for you, whereas Bitcoin, you can keep the keys yourself, you can secret yourself. So I think that's like one input that has been spreading around uh, in space. But I think for CoinGecko itself as well, like we are not an exchange, we are not a brokerage, we don't hold funds and stuff like that. So I think for us, the key thing was like, can we provide accurate data? Can we make sure that the amount of data that we collect keeps expanding? I think that's the most important thing for us. And we never had to have issues explaining to customers about 
issue about traffic because we don't hold their funds. So I think that's a, a good thing for us. Yeah. You have a fantastic tweet where the first one you said that you bootstrap with $100. And I'm just curious, what was that $100 for and how was it like to bootstrap? Yeah, so as I mentioned, it's a sad project, right? So we never, we never get capital for anyone else. So $100 is, is the early stage. We were running it on a free hosting, free hosting, right? So again, like, like you don't really need to put any dollars. So it's running as cheap as possible because side project, no profit, like why putting capital in the first place? So kind of cheap hosting, free hosting, and then just write the code, deploy it over there, and we never make any higher, right? So I thought I wrote the code, deploy it over there, and then Bobby goes it. Make a shout out, make an offer, and say, hey, we got this service going on. I think he was sharing on newsletter to get the initial group of users to come in. That's like our first user base, right? And then they talk like, give us a couple of feedback. And what happens is down the road, once we outgrow from the free service, we started putting advertisement on the website. So we're making a decent amount. Again, I think because it's like a niche space. So we were able to get a few advertisers here and there. Basically, the advertising gets reinvested back into the company. So this was uh, like exchanges who were already trying to collab with you? I think in the early stage was just like Google Ad, uh, which is the typical ad services like Google. Google uh, Yeah, Google or whoever we use that. Right? So we were using that. In the early stage, and uh, then it jumped into like a couple hundred or maybe a thousand dollars per month. Then we can use that to just pay off the whole state fees. We inject a little capital here and there, a hundred dollars or so, just to get the ball rolling. But from the very beginning, we were already like profitable from the, the apps revenue and just reinvest back into the company. We never do any salary because we have our whole day job. Eventually, as the product grows and grows and grows, then we have some surplus and we can use that to make our hire or, or to get transportation services. We just go to product. But yeah, really, it's just uh, started off from a free service and then just reinvest back whatever that we have because it keep costs so low that there's almost no cost at all behind that. Didn't you even have universities in the early days reach out to you for collaborations as well? How did those things happen? I think that happened, again, because we were doing something that no one was gathering developer data, getting committee data, internet, and plotting that to see is it possible to say that a crypto project will be successful in correlation with this data there were uh, a couple of professors around the world that we happened to be able to get in touch with that also were quite interested in crypto and they got their you know, PhD students and whatnot to look into this space that they actually were doing chronometrics, they were studying tech and stuff like that, but I think there were some thought process or, you know, this crypto space is very recent, why don't you look into this? So that was how we got connected with, I think, Singapore Management University and Humboldt Berlin, a couple of other universities as well. And we did that network to see whether the data that we have can be of use to them. So we supplied them with data for them to work on their own research. So we kind of understand and learn from them, like what they think about our data and that allows us to iterate and that also decides, like, you know, the direction of the product on whether you're going to focus more on the data or switch to something else like private. It sounds like what you were doing, you were ranking top for all your Google searches organically, and that was really driving the traffic. Was that how you managed to scale with the marketing costs? What was the tactic behind it? The technique that we used for media or search engine optimization, it, 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 it is possible to do it at a time at a very low cost because no one is paying attention again to this state. If you look at it right now, it's very, very competitive, but back then, no one is actually putting dollar values to capture on this keyword. So we managed to capture that opportunity. And then we were also translating CoinGecko into like 15 to 20 languages from day one as well, supporting all the currency, all these exotic countries, all the countries around the world. That itself, it becomes content, right? So you can imagine in 2018, when Bitcoin was largely English-speaking or US dollar-dominated conversation, someone out there in Europe, Asia, what have you, who do not read English, happened to be able to discover CoinGecko because of the language that we translate in. And also we pride assets in the currency that they care about. And, and that's how it got us like another group of user base and, and the acquisition cost is quite low for us as well. We never had to spend on ads and things like that. Yeah, so that, that's more or less. 
It may sound so easy to just translate to 10, 15 languages. I'm sure it wasn't that easy, especially since you weren't even hiring for the first few years. So how did you manage to get it translated? How were you finding the people to help you with that? It's quite a long process. One thing that we know of was that crypto is a universal language because it's money, right? Everyone looks at money the same way. So we know the scale it can reach. So that's one thesis, right? In terms of how we do the translation, at least we engage our friends. We just have friends who speak Japanese, friends who speak German. I just show them like how you go say, hey, I'm working on this. What do you think about this site? And then we say, oh, okay, how about you help us translate this content into whatever language? And they just do it either for fun or because they want to practice their, their language and stuff like that. Uh, and then we sort of like pay them a Bitcoin or pay them in China or, or what have you. And then later on, not just a translation plan, like any block engineering help, because we didn't make any full-time hire. So I did also like, I reached out to a couple of friends, hey, can you help me with, you know, this thing here, this thing here, and then you know, pay them again with Bitcoin or Dogecoin or whatever, just because they want to do it for fun. I think it's all about this episode where uh, Peter Carly weren't taken seriously by them, and we're just doing it because it's fun and, and interesting, and we thought it was something that the people would use, and nobody else there to work. I suppose it's a bit like a digital monopoly, right? You go around playing it, at least this is some kind of currency that you can easily send around to each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Compared to, you know, the, the, the usual profit which that takes a couple of days to settle. Weren't you going to places like Hacktoberfest by DigitalOcean as a GitHub to find people as well? Oh, yeah. So, like, Hackathon, where open source project can put up there and then you, you, you just contribute to that open source project and then you replace you get, like, a t-shirt or a badge. To recognize that you participated in this hackathon. I think hackathon was also a thing at the time. You got a developer community because you always just want to keep hacking and keep honing your skills. And I think what happened was, again, like we never had full-time staff and stuff like that. And it's really a point where CoinGecko needs to get into prizes. So this was the, the pivotal moment where we said, okay, we want to start tracking prizes on exchanges, but how are we going to cover all the exchanges Along the way, I think the time of only about 20 or 30 exchanges that really matter. But doing your work to integrate all the exchanges one by one still takes time when we require us to hire freelancers to work on it. So one of the ideas I had was I'll build the, the foundation and then as an example on how the integration is done and then use Hacktoberfest opportunity to get contributors. So I actually open source this code base and anyone can actually use it, which is the, the some kind of trade-off that I, I give out my code for free. And in return, they will work on this actual integration that they can use for themselves or, or let other people use it. But I will also use it for point equals case to integrate those prizes. So that allows us to quickly get 30 exchanges integrated to be at least on par with what our competitors were doing in order to get those prizes in. Wouldn't you worry that because you put your code out there, anyone could easily just copy and paste and do the Dogecoin version of CoinGecko? I wasn't very afraid about that because there were already a lot of open source versions of this kind of uh, exchange plugin, right? But none of them were sort of like the flavor that we wanted, either because the language is different or it's done in a different way or maybe that they cover the exchange that we care about. Because there are already instances of this, it, it, it's fine for us. It goes way beyond just taking the, the code right, and just like launching your own product because other things that comes with execution, knowing how to position your product. We thought that you just need to make a trade-off at the time because we couldn't really find developers who want to work on this or on a full-time basis at the time or even like contribute, spend the money as well because we are very, very tight already. And so we, we were looking at this opportunity to get some of the work done by open source contributors, which is mutually beneficial. Since you were tight on money and it's not like you were not unfamiliar with the stuff that were in Silicon Valley, surely you must have been thinking of, I should get investors on board and ease the burden on myself. Yeah, that, definitely up to that point, we've still been holding on to that, you know, big camp environment, right? Like, again, it's not sense business, but we managed to claw the profit back into whatever that we need to do, running the servers or any sort of marketing that needs to be done. 
and keep running along. As you mentioned, like, surely there will be a point in time where you want to raise VC money. But I think there were a couple of instances on why we ended up not doing it. Number one was, this was, say, uh, 2015-2016, when Bitcoin price is very unstable and we don't know where it's going. Even like Bitcoin developers announcing that they're leaving the space. And so we reinforced this, like, you know, it's, it's just going to stick around for a while. And if we do raise money, then, you know, what, what will happen then? And the second was that because it was largely a Bitcoin thing, Ethereum hasn't really launched or hasn't really been used here. It was very hard to see whether within two, three years, can we create a story for investors as well? And lastly, so we actually spoke to a few investors, but again, they weren't very optimistic with our project because they haven't been following the crypto space. So they're not sure where our will be because it doesn't appear like a 10x project. So we're just providing like prices and data. Like it doesn't give you that 10x return kind of page. Again, that was a sort of like added back to this. Like, again, are we in the same, are we in the right state? Like, we're spending so much time working on this and people are saying it's not going to go anywhere. So, in the end, we did tell us to just keep it as a, as a side project, just continue to, to just build it and, and see where it goes. As long as the product is profitable or be able to pay for itself, we can run this for the next 10 years, 20 years. And in back around here was that there is going to be an F score moment for, for crypto, right? Like, we do see crypto or blockchain as a platform that developers can come in and build stuff. And there'll be a lot of utility being built on top of that. But at the time, we just don't know how long it would take to get there. Like, is it 10 years, 20 years? Knowing that we know there was quite some buzz in 2018. And then even crazier buzz we know in 2021. But then again, if you look back again on what I did right now, infrastructure is still very latent and there's a lot of work that needs to be done, which again goes back to maybe eight, uh, 10 to 20 years for all this infrastructure that needs to be built up to be as good as what the internet is right now. Were you not tend to pivot, like you said, questioning whether this is a place where you could actually 10x? I mean, even now you have to ship out so many different deliverables just to get some kind of revenue. It's just like mostly like advertising or it's like content. So were you not tempted to do something that might be an easier solution? There was some thoughts about this. One part of our strategy was that we used uh, CoinMaker as a way to you know, run this crypto service. And at the time, I think crypto was very much likened to uh, fintech. So it's like a extension of fintech, right? So you got Bitcoin, which people are using for limited and stuff like that. So what we tried to do was to position CoinGecko as a fintech product. So we, we joined like, a couple of hackathons here and there to see like, hey, you know, we have some knowledge here, you know, it's applicable in there. But it turns out that there's a huge gap between the traditional financial world. Like the things that they need is, is very different than the things that we can provide. And so the skills that we have is still not something that they are actually looking for. What were the differences, if you don't mind sharing a little bit? Yeah, I, I think like for for the, the the way like you know banking and fintech kind of work was that things are much uh, more conservative and much more slower, and a lot of things have already been figured out, and uh, the solutions come in to solve like, the neighbors of things. And what happens like when, for example, if you want to deploy a code change, you can't really use a cloud that usually like you have to go through like regulatory requirements, state work, and then you need to get like lots of people to check things off. And so there's a preconceived notion on what is safe and what works and can your solution be as good and as secure to make it work. Whereas on the crypto side, I think when we've been doing this, we realize that people are always experimenting. There is no preconceived notion on what's an ideal situation. Crypto exchange, for example, it's not compare with, because it doesn't exist. So I think what was interesting for us was that we were very involved in seeing through all these things that get built up, like super value lock. It, it doesn't exist in the trap prime world, but you're seeing that that term getting coined and seeing how it formed that's why I'm being in that journey was like, you know, that, that key difference of how you're dealing with financial services. But the, the difference itself is making it very difficult for us to bridge into the fintech world when we wanted to sort of like pivot it away. 
And the other one was also thinking about subscription service, right? Can we put a paywall or subscription for people to access all this data? But I think at the back of our head was that we're still very early in this whole crypto industry. If we put a paywall and charge people for this data and service, then we are again just giving ourselves like a niche that we want to serve. And when a new audience coming to the state, they wouldn't actually be able to benefit from the service that you have built unless they understood what you're doing and they pay you for that. So there's definitely some thoughts about this, but we didn't end up doing it and just continue to provide free available information and supported by ads. Will you say that the getting of more users on board is one of the reasons why you want to maintain your API for free forever, as you've said before? Yeah, that's one part of it, but I think also what the competitive move for us. We were actually a late player to the states in a lot of things, including the API itself. When we launched our API, we don't see any way of how we can attract developers to use our API because we are viewed as player number four in the ecosystem. We are not the major player. Marketing-wise, there's, there's no easy pitch on why you would use our data. So when we put it out for free and our competitors put it out for a price tag, suddenly there, there will be a conversation they can ask like, okay, your API is free, what do you do? And we can start sharing about the benefits of our data. We actually have really good data. We have comprehensive collection of all the points out there. We're constantly trying to add as many points and focus as we can for our service. And then they're like, okay, let me just give this a go because there's no risk to them. And this is really a bear market. This was maybe 2018 or 2019, but there has to be a free API provided so that the developers can use the data and proof of concept because there's really no money to be made in space and only with free data available then they can proceed with this experiment so for us like we wanted to just continue doing this and, and see where it goes that allows us to capture the developer mindshare which kind of helps us grow as well as, as a product since data is so central to what CoinGecko is doing where does your data come from and how do you ensure that you get accurate price data feeds the early stage of CoinGecko was mainly centralized data aggregation most of the trading activity happens on centralized data. So we speak to all these exchanges, get a, a API, feed all of them into our system and then aggregate them so that it's easy for developers and users to look them up. What really tricky was 19. People are trying to experiment with, you know, is it possible to build an exchange totally on the blockchain, completely trustless, you control your keys, you just interact with the smart contract and then you can do your trades and your swaps. Us at the time was very difficult to figure out like how to bring the data in there because number one is we should use the central exchange world. And all the data, the way it's structured is, is very difficult for us to aggregate. Eventually, we made the bet that, okay, even though there's not many tokens, not many people are using all these actors, we do believe that with exchanges getting hacked or funds stolen, there needs to be a decentralized exchange where I can keep the funds secure on my end and use it in a trusted manner. So that itself got us to like, okay, maybe we just need to integrate as many of all these essential exchange into CoinGecko and provide this information to, to our users. And then later on, people decided that this is the, sort of the best way to aggregate liquidity or, or list your token. And that itself gave us solving an edge because there's no other place you can get token information or market data from the blockchain exchange. And so that pays off quite well. How do you decide what to list on CoinGecko? There is sort of like a listing criteria that we list on there. We need to have a kind of volume. It needs to be a fake the project and like that, but it's what community interest be? Yeah, yes, community interest definitely. Yeah, there, there is a list of it. I think there is all these criteria that we can sort of use to say, okay, you know, really get listed or not. But it also comes to a point where things get really, really great. Like you can't really tell, um, you know, what's a good project, what's a bad project. On our side, the minimum requirement is that, you know, community interest, is there sufficient liquidity out there? Can we spot any bad news and things like that? We use all this information to list this project. And I think listing a project on Quite doesn't really mean anything at all. It just gives people to look at all these data sets. But on our end, you just introduce this additional check just so we can inform the community if there's anything that we found regarding the project itself. Do you have any ways to ensure that you're not promoting projects that are actually scams or rock pools? 
Yeah. Some of the things that we have done in the early stage was having this alert mechanism. Right? So I think in the early days, people activators do not even have any soft alert. Like if the project is a scam or turns out to be a scam, it just doesn't appear at all, right? I think this is one of the things that we have done like in the early stage was, okay, if we put a alert, if we found someone reporting a news to us, like saying that someone's investigating you know, the project, or it is on the watch list of some monetary authority and things like that, we'll put out an alert and so that everybody knows about it. So that's number one. Number two is when DeFi was a thing, a lot of people do not understand the idea of liquidity, right? So we actually have a liquidity check. So like if the liquidity is not sufficient, we'll actually put an alert against it that if you buy this token, for instance, it is possible that the liquidity provider can take out the entire liquidity and you're left with nothing. So keeping out with what kind of attack vector is in the space and then putting up all these alerts helps keep people informed on what's happening. We don't actually want to just delist them because if you delist them, then people would not have an idea about what's wrong with this project, for example. So like, these are some of the, the things that we have introduced regarding tokens. The other one is exchanges. I think this was a thing in the past where exchanges were inflating their volume with no real trade. So we introduced this thing called Trust Ball, which we look at audible, depth, the, the trade that were happening, how much traffic that the, the exchange are actually getting. Are they really over-reporting their trading volume? So that forms our algorithm to educate users to look at all the other metrics and not just the volume before you decide to exchange. Because what happens is you may deposit your funds to the exchange and then it turns out that there's not much liquidity in there and your slippage goes like 50% when you just do a buy and sell. We wanted to educate our audience at the time what all these actually mean and, and not just look at the, the volume there. You said you wouldn't necessarily delist. Does that mean that you would never delist a token that's been on their platform? Or what are the circumstances where you would consider doing it? What we end up doing was if we found out there is something going on with the project, we typically put a alert in there and then we let the, the pick run by itself. So there will be no pilot, there will be nothing to see, but there will be an alert at the top telling you what had happened to this project at the very last instance. I think deleting was something that we used to do in the past, but ever since then, I think the operations right now is to put out the notice out there and just let it run. And you were one of the first to put all the DeFi tokens as well, and that really helped you to get a lot of coverage. How do you find out about these tokens and be basically the first to put them onto your list? Largely, the, the team members that we attracted in the early days, some joined CoinGecko who were very into DeFi and they were following the space very, very closely. And they were also the one that influences like myself or Bobby to check, check out the, the DeFi space. And because they were so in the space, they always give us information like what's happening here, what kind of projects we're working on. Like, you know, people are working on Uniswap, we're working on all these like taxes or money market. So I think there were people in our team who were interested in DeFi generally, and that becomes information that's shared within the, the company and figure out like, okay, what steps can we make and should we make it back to integrate all these services? That would be a thing because if you think about it, it was so difficult to use a swap service. It's still difficult right now. So why, why would people, why would anyone use this, right? But it turns out that people will learn to, will learn how to jump through hoops to get certain things done. And that paves the way for DeFi to become a like bigger than the way you did. Money is a great motivator. What are the main milestones you would say in the growth of CoinGecko? I think for us was a founder of a side project. And then eventually, 2018, we managed to make our first school time high. And then from there, we started thinking seriously how to grow the team, how to grow this as a real product, and what are the problems that we need to solve out there. And can we even grow our audience step by step and get through that? I think that's the milestone for us in 2018. And then in 2020, with, with DeFi and everything that helped us as well to go up to the stage, like, is Metaverse going to be a thing? We have to keep asking ourselves where will CoinEco play its role to make the drive world like a better place, right? People have no idea how to start, no idea how to navigate. And you've got a big company trying to come in and, you know, compete with decentralized space. So I guess for us, it's how can we position our product to onboard people sort of like benefit from this economy? Again, just figuring out what products and services to build for that. I think that's the part where it's still unknown to us. 
Speaking of corporates, you've got banks like DBS entering, launching their own retail crypto trading services. How do you see that impacting the crypto space? Yeah, I think it's a positive thing. If you look back like eight years ago, no incumbent entity like banks or well, we even want to touch crypto or Bitcoin. You're seeing it right now. And what that means is that your customer, one day customers are informed enough to know what Bitcoin is. That's why you've got like banks offering this service. I think it's a good thing also because you need competition in space. Exchanges have been running at the bank for a long time and they also figure out the best way to secure their funds and things like that. The banks are also going to keep your funds safe, right? So they need to, you know, bring that kind of practices in there. Like if a retail client is going to store like hundreds of millions of dollars, they have no idea how to keep it in their core wallet and, and what have you. Instead of using exchange, you know, using a bank is one option provided they get their things right and their controls correct. But it is definitely a move towards mainstream adoption, more adoption, more people understand what Bitcoin is and, and the role it plays in someone's portfolio. It's just natural for more competition, especially incumbents to come in. One of the big things that made the headlines was when Binance bought CoinMarketCap. And I wonder how that affected you and the operations at CoinGecko. I think in the immediate thing for us was that, yeah, it, it was kind of strange because both of us, when we were in the state, like CoinMarketCap and ourselves, we were supposed to be like neutral, unbiased, and aggregated for all exchanges and all coins and all tokens. So it's kind of uh, strange a little bit for an exchange to acquire a coin market cap. I think like for us was to position our product in such a way that you know we are independent. We're not owned by an exchange, nor is it some audiences who cares about independence to rely and use our service. That kind of helps. But I think the other flip side was also like it gets uh, more competitive and much more difficult for us to run as well because Binance is a big entity and they have infinite resources. On our end is how do we compete in this space and what is it that we can do differently, uh, which is something that we're always constantly thinking about and just finding our aid here and there again. Yeah. Will you say that you're more open to, say, investors coming in now because you need to be able to compete to get the best talents around the world and they're going to go for the USD salary rather than the ringgit salary when they can? Yeah, definitely something that we're always thinking about. I, I do think that salary isn't the only thing that will solve the problem per se, right? I mean, there's so many other aspects of retention that any company or anyone have to consider as well. Definitely having a lot of capital would solve a lot of problems, but it also comes with a lot of strings attached as well. So I think having capital will solve some problems, but not all the problems and can introduce new problems as well. Conversely, if you don't have capital, you have certain flexibility and again, certain problems appear differently. But I think because we've been running it for maybe like eight years right now without external capital and we seem to be able to run it in this way, we want to try to see like how far we can push this. But as we say, we're not shutting the door to say like we're still talking and discussing internally. Like you know, if it does make sense for us to do it, we may do it. This is something that we're not entirely to do so. But that's also kind of the best time to raise funds because like, you actually don't need it. So you can have more bargaining power. To the extent that you're willing to share, what would be sort of the tipping point for you to be willing to consider investors and what kind of investors will you be open to seeing? What's interesting about this space is that you can imagine how the future would look like in any way you want it to. And then you can drown yourself in there and, and make the case for it and go to investors and, and raise that money. So there's also obviously that it wouldn't go that way just because you look at history, right? A lot of companies were doing fundraising on the basis that Bitcoin is the center of everything. Like you, you would do everything around Bitcoin and a lot of companies were doubling down on that kind of future. But it turns out that Bitcoin did not become the center of everything. And a lot of those companies, if they fail to see it, then they end up either going bankrupt or closing down. And then Ethereum turns out to take out a certain huge amount of pie on some of the, the blockchain activity. And then you got again, uh, people who do fundraising on the basis of that activity itself. Like, you know, maybe NFT will be a thing. Maybe DeFi will be even bigger. So, you know, let's raise money and let's double down on that. And then when you think back after the, the return, like 
downturn, is it is it going to be as more stale as you pitch it? Or it's going to be different flavor altogether. Like, or are we going to pitch a whole different product or different idea to that gap that is missing? Knowing that, right, it becomes very difficult to, to see what kind of future you want to pitch to investors. That's one. Number two is because you've been running it on an incremental basis, you see that changes takes like a gradual push and then suddenly, right? So keeping up with the industry and, and how it changes will give us that information to like, okay, maybe you can make a conviction that this is something that we will pitch. But up to this point, it's just not 100% enough. Flipping to the other side, you, Kongeka, also invest in other companies. You have this thing called CoinGecko Ventures. So how did that idea come about and how do you decide on who to invest in? This was something that we put together sometime in 2020. We thought that, okay, suddenly there was a surge of developers, builders who were coming to the space, building things, which we haven't seen that kind of surge in the last couple of years. We thought it was a good opportunity to support this project and also like help them any way that we can get involved in some of the things that, that they're working on. That was like the initial idea, right? And obviously from, you know, just a sudden seeing of small, small amount of developers coming in, the state continue to grow bigger and bigger and bigger. Again, we are not a venture capital. We are not a professional finding this fund. It's, it's more of an agent investment between myself and, and Bobby, like looking at interesting project and how we can help. If they here, the good partners, their synergy, then we'll just invest on the side. But it's not something that, that we focus on at least for now. Maybe down the road we might, but at least for now, it's more of an agent investment. Focus on interesting stuff that we want to get involved, but maybe don't have the time to build as well because we're just so focused on the CoinGecko problem that we face every day. Because we never actually dealt with this question, what does CoinGecko actually do? Because I noticed you have many, many, many different offerings. So what are those? Just in case people don't know what CoinGecko is about. CoinGecko is a cryptocurrency data aggregator. So basically, you want to find out for a given particular coin price, market data, volume, where is it traded, or any kind of information about a crypto project, you can come to CoinGecko. So a good analogy for that is if you do things like Yahoo Finance or Bloomberg to look up stocks, instead of stocks, you want to look up cryptocurrency, then CoinGecko is the place for you. And there's also a section where you can also deep dive into all the learnings as well. You also have books that people can purchase or use candies if they visit every single day. Yeah, the main product that we offer is the data, right? The, the prices, the market data and stuff like that. And the other extension of it, as you mentioned, things like education, this sort of like builds up over time. At this stage, we were using like quarterly reports as the opportunity to explain what has happened in the space in the last quarter. And it was actually useful for, especially doing like bearish market where people are not necessarily paying attention to the space and it was very easy to keep up with things. Almost like everything had happened into like one report. Obviously right now it's much more difficult, but we still do that. The report I try to bring in all the highlights of the quarter process. And this is basically designed for people who are not actively following the space, but they still want to get up to speed with things, right? And then the other one is the books. We launched a DeFi book. I think it was the first DeFi book. There was no other way you can get all this information. You can do your research, do the work, and compile them into a, a book and make it easy for anyone to digest. So all these things fall under the umbrella of observer of the space and wanting to share what we have learned, what we have gone through, and just make it easier as possible for newcomers to onboard and get all this in one space. The the other offering that's quite private for us is the API, work with developers so that they can use our data to empower their app. The other things are like candies and whatnot, those are like interesting add-ons that if you are quite able users, you can monitor the crypto prices, use one code, you know, you can just like engage into all these extra benefits. I noticed there was quite a huge focus on NFTs as well. And I imagine that must be because there was a huge boom of interest in NFTs. Yeah, so I think NFTs, we didn't really do too much. Also because me personally, I was interested in NFTs quite early on time. And then later on, like the central land with the land and XC and stuff like that. Again, it didn't really occur to me how NFT explode to the way it is. There was a, a niche group of artists that were meeting and stuff like that. 
And I also find it very difficult to make the case of uh, energy between coin and gold. Like, you know, what should be built in the NFT stage? Because the stage itself is really, really complex. You've got different kinds of assets that are not comparable. Like a NFT that is part of a game is not comparable with an NFT that artists like, create in, in whatever form. We are in space itself, there's like one of one, 10 of 10, 100, 100. They're not comparable at all. It's so complex that we don't even know like how to do this work. But, but I think a lot of people in Quantico were just interested in NFT and they were just following it. So I think later on when NFT wave took off, it just made sense for us to share what we learned from the early days all the way to where it is right now. And also again, create this how to NFT book for people who just want to get into the space and get their first bid or even use NFT and what it is about. Like, is this like a catch in a pan or it can be a building block for something bigger down the road? What's important for us is to project what's going to happen in the next two, three years, where NFT will be, whether the metaverse will happen and then provide the services or the products that will help people to onboard into this space and take advantage of it. I would say that you definitely onboard a lot of people because I saw in the year-end review for 2021, you had 50 million monthly visitors in January and that tripled to 150 million by November. What would you say was behind that massive growth? Definitely one thing that pulls people into the crypto space always going to be the price. So whenever Bitcoin price goes up, naturally lots of people start getting interested in the space. I think that's the nature of the industry. And I think for us on our side is while the interest in what Coinco is doing is really reliant on how the crypto market is behaving, but there's a lot of things that, that we try to do on our end to attract people who are in it for the long term and build the features and also like the meeting pieces. Assuming that we go through whichever bearish cycle and then we come back stronger again and if crypto were to empower like our day-to-day and whatnot, hopefully we do have some of these things that we leave behind and hopefully the whole infrastructure will be much, much better. When the price goes up, there's a lot of people interested on our end is to provide as many information as we can so that they know how to navigate and avoid falling to the wrong path. Speaking of bearish market, we are in the thick of one and you're someone who has been here since the time of Mangot. So what is your view of what's happening in the space right now? I, I think that one thing that's constantly in the crypto market is that good times will last forever. When things go up and up and up, there has to be a time where a correction happens. I think what was very different with this current bull market is that it lasted way longer than we thought. During the Mount Gox one, it lasted like a couple of weeks. And the last one during 2018, 2019, it lasted for a few months, I think like six months or so. And it lasted like almost a whole year. I think the whole 2021 was like a good year, right? Which is kind of odd. If you wonder like, you know, is this really world changing or everything is going to come to an end? Every time you think you've hit Mount Everest, there's another Mount Everest to hide. Yeah, yeah. One thing that we have to keep in mind, we're in this space, you know, volatility is a thing. You need to be able to stomach it or, or reassess your risk profile and only to get it walk to a point where you're comfortable to stay in the long run, right? So I think that's like one thing, right? Second one is that if, if, if this is true, we're definitely always going to come back stronger. So if you look back, even before Mount Gox, I think there will be many times people say Bitcoin is dead, Bitcoin is dead, but it came back again. 2014, and then go down again, and Bitcoin is dead, you know, crypto is dead, and then 2018, Ethereum took off, there's all these like ICOs and fundraising, all these crazy ideas were happening, and then it collapsed. People say that's it, like it's over. But the same, same is true here, right? That there's going to be this thing, like, you know, algo stable coin is going to introduce all kinds of problems, and all these things are going to work. But if you look back at every one of these incidents in a very optimistic way, that there are people who would study this accident, right? We as an industry come up with ways to avoid this problem from reoccurring. We use this as a lesson for us to come back stronger. If you look at current infrastructure, it is definitely much better than it was four or five years ago, six years ago. Back then, even for a developer to get involved in the space, that isn't any resources that you can use to get started. Now you have tools, services, SDKs, frameworks that you can use to deploy a token in just one click or deploy an FD in one click. So definitely all the tools and services are there. It's just can we make it safe enough for people to use? Can the user experience easy and simple enough for anyone to do directly? 
say a little law of all this, see that I think we'll be focusing on and same is true for mainstream adoption, right? Like, yes, there is definitely a use case for decentralizing the internet, tokenizing creativity, but is there anything else that is missing other than the version one of it? What's the version two of it? Then could that be the one that sustained so that you will use all these crypto services like you're using it uh, on your phone? And I think that's what we're all hoping to see down the road. But again, I, I think like the bear market is the best time for people to get involved, use the opportunity to build something that people would, would use and good products typically comes from the bear market. All everyone's been talking about has been the implosion of the Luna token. And I'm sure a lot of people will have asked you the question, is this the end of crypto? So how would you respond to something like that? What's the impact of Luna, do you think? The impact of Luna is definitely big because it is a large market cap. Then it went to almost zero and so attracted a lot of like retail money and people who may not necessarily understand the space deeply enough and putting their money in there. And this is very similar to say the 2018 incident with ICOs where people, retail money may have gone into some of all these questionable projects. And then it could also be doing Mount side. People just send money into some exchanges and trade those, those, those coins, right? I guess that the scale of, of Luna itself is really big because it is a big crypto county project. Equal size, maybe not so much to the collapse of Mount but it is that big. In terms of how, how these are, I think this is a learning point, right? People who got hit by this, for example, it is unfortunate. But again, we have to ask ourselves, why we invest in cryptocurrency in the first place? Everyone who is either impacted directly or indirectly will start asking ourselves, is this something that we should be doing? Like, are we going to build services that are very similar to this? Will we be able to go to market such manners? I think everyone will be asking questions rather than just blindly following uh, along. Unfortunately, you have to come to something like this. We want to just like realize that the party is over and it's time to work on fundamental. Otherwise, there'll be no wake-up call for everyone. Just to highlight the risks that are inherent in this, I wanted to bring up two recent incidences that CoinGecko had to go through. One was back in March when there was this malicious ad script by CoinZilla. I wonder if you could just share what happened, what's the story behind that? How did it occur? Yeah, so on CoinGecko, we actually have advertising banners and things like that. And I think one of some of some part of the banners were sort of like integrated with a third party service where they will acquire customers and then they will do like KYC and stuff like that. And then your customer would then put their banner on wherever the crypto site is integrated with their, their ad service. And one of them is like, you know, on CoinGecko. And they happen to have a security loophole where they were able to inject malicious code that whenever someone visits CoinGecko in the banner loads, it will tell the user that, hey, some site is giving a free, like, bought it NFT. So click this to continue. And if you continue doing it, potentially you may lose your funds or you may sign the wrong transaction and bad things happen to, to, to your address. So to know what happened, if you're in the crypto space long enough, you would notice that this kind of phishing attack happens everywhere. If you're on Twitter, you will see like all kinds of weird things going on. Say like, you know, send me one leave, I'll send you back 10 leave, things like that, right? For, for people who are not, for people who are new to this, they, you know, they, they may see this as like an opportunity and things like that. Again, you bring back your, your, your head, right? Like something, if it's too good to be true, it may be too good to be true. But I guess phishing calls, scam calls, trying to, you know, go after your bank accounts and things like that. So I think it's just the nature of the whole internet space being very hostile. Whenever there is a loophole or an opportunity for hackers or bad actors to act on, they will take the opportunity. And this is unfortunate also that in crypto's case, once it happens, like there's really no way back. So it made sense for us to want to do this. Again, it's not new when internet sort of like form in the early stage, there's a lot of scams as well that were, were ongoing. So where, where do we go from here, right? Again, number one is human psychology is always the most vulnerable thing. Like I can imagine like even anyone who is the most savvy, the most technical, when they are caught off guard, where do we go from here? It's like just building better user experience, educating people as much as possible. If the user experience is improved, then there's a time that you can mitigate it as much as possible. If it sounds too good to be true, they shouldn't do it. 
But of course, the more risk you reduce, the more inconvenience you introduce to users as well. So it's the balancing act of keeping your know, internet security hygiene uh, as good as possible versus like getting things done on, on the internet. Given that this thing with Coinzilla had happened, is there anything that CoinGecko can actually do to prevent future similar incidences from happening? It doesn't sound like you can do anything, actually. I, I think one of the immediate steps we have taken is to at least pause the integration and uh, take, take the time to reassess what's really happening out there. Because I think this is like the first for us, despite running banner advertisement for, for almost a like year now, almost eight years or so, that this is the first time I saw that this is a possible attack vector. So I, I guess for us, the immediate move is to just pause and look at what went wrong. Is there anything we can improve with the processes or maybe find other other solutions as well? But inherently, if this is like an attack vector that is hard to patch or whatnot, it is a problem. But the thing is also like, because, you know, the integration with another party, which is where we trust the third party that they do the, they do the due diligence, they have security patch. And it's going back to the whole DeFi thing, right? Where they call it money labels, where you know you put your money market combined with some oracle, and this oracle gives you price input, and then the money market combines with some decentralized exchange to execute some exchange. So all these talk to each other, and whenever there is a bug or a security loophole in one of all these services, then it starts propagating with each other, and that's where like the danger is, right? Is there enough controls that they can be introduced? So I think like because why you guys still run like a company, like we can still come in and intervene and put a pause to some of these services, but when it comes to like decentralized apps like DeFi. It's much more difficult. Like there needs to be a uh, governance call involved to make a decision. So if you look at the Taiwan Luna incident, there was already a sign that you know, maybe there was some weakness at the time where the US dollars were depending from the USD. The USD was depending on US dollars. What kind of immediate steps would you do? Like, like if, if, if Taiwan were to come in and do it, do certain things, you appear very centralized or you defer it to the community to decide on what can be done to solve some of these problems. So I think that this is just one example, but all these protocols, because they're run in a decentralized way, they can be good and bad out of it when it comes to responding to emergencies like this. There's another one I wanted to bring up, which is the issue of the CoinGecko token. And I wonder what's the story behind that? CoinGecko token, there's no token for CoinGecko. <laughs> How do you find out about it? Because it was listed on Dextool's app, right? And they didn't even take it down. Oh, oh you mean like um, a CoinGecko token? In the DeFi space, it is possible for anyone to create a token and call it anything they want to, which is why it's you know, commissioned and things like that. And then it gets picked up by any on-chain creator, right? like an explorer or Dex, like you mentioned Dex tools, which is the on-chain charting app for whatever's happening on chain. So whatever is on-chain, you just take it as page value, right? And it also like, it becomes very great on whether these services should like ban it or not ban, right? It is not wrong for someone to do it. Although, yes, they try to advertise it as a CoinGecko official token. That's why we don't endorse it. But in the eye of some of these on-chain aggregation service, they want to appear like unbiased and they want to just take whatever that's on-chain to be the truth. So which is why there's this debate of on-chain, off-chain. On-chain is likely to be true, whereas it's off-chain can be tempered because someone controls the server, for example. So I think that that's probably the reason why it shows up here and there. But it comes down to, can you relate back to the original source? So I think same is true for NFTs. You got people who are stealing other artists' artwork, making it an NFT, and you would expect some survey to take it down. Maybe some, maybe OpenSea would take it down because they, they have the policy for that. But maybe some other marketplace that do not have that kind of policy would just keep it up there because it's not wrong to do so. And, and that's where things become very great. And that means that we need to have like another government entity centralized that goes ahead and police content at scale across the internet. Yeah, I, I don't know if maybe that might be possible down the road, three years away from now. Maybe that's what, what we need, like a way to do this in a decentralized way and a scale rather than deferring to companies or owners of a service to take down the information. When Gecko has turned eight this year, what can we expect moving forward? 
Yeah, from really eight years, for us, the challenge is trying to grow the company. We were hitting like about 60 people. I think that there is a challenge itself, especially like for myself who is new to this. A lot of change, a lot of structure, things that we need to work on so that product can grow by itself. But in terms of what's going to come out there, is really looking back at, at all our product offerings and product services, see which is relevant and double down on that. I think one thing we want to really bet on is what's going to happen three years from now. It's a metaverse going to be the place where most users will come in and spend most of the time, rather than using devices. If that's the case, then what features will we onboard these users and make it easy for them? So yeah, that's just one area that I'm personally watching and see what angle we can go in there. But otherwise, just check out our website or day-to-day basis. You see how our service will change accordingly based on how the industry moves. You've mentioned the metaverse twice. I wonder, just off the top of your head, what kind of features do you anticipate creating potentially if metaverse really, really takes off? The metaverse can be understood in a different way. If you look at Mount Capable's vision, if you see it in a immersive VR version of the metaverse, that is one version of it. But it might be like the final phase of the metaverse where all things work out well. Do you think that for Mark Zuckerberg, it will actually take off because he's taking 40% and that's already almost antithetical to the whole nature of what decentralization is? Yeah, talking about the ease, I think he's doing it in his own flavor, right? And what he thinks is it's a metaverse which is owned by potentially Facebook. Again, I don't know whether he will change the plan or whatnot. If you think of it as similar flavor, then that's the model that he wants to work. And I think in return, what he's guaranteeing the content creators is a safe space and a distributed channel that you can get your users and that's why they justify the 40% cut. And then if you were to compare that with the decentralized side of things, there's a lot of infrastructure that we need to build. Like, can we provide a safe state for people to come in and transact correctly and, and also not end up buying the, the, the wrong item or the counterfeit item? Is there enough distribution generally? Is the tax there or not? Is, is it fun enough compared to what a fitting version of, 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 the, of the metaverse? He has probably some reasons why he wants to take that cut, provide that assurance. But there is definitely a risk regards to, are you taking too much? And is that going to be at the expense of the content creator? The content creator can do the same thing in the decentralized space, but they get more cut off. It comes out to, can we create a metaverse that is good enough experience, at least for version one, where users coming in every day, socializing, playing some games, immersive enough for them to play the game because they want to, not because it's a job. I think that's the first part that, that the, the space needs to crack. And I'm hoping to see how Pyro can play a role in helping projects do that and also helping onboard people into this space because there are definitely some economic opportunities for those who, for example, not able to make a living or find it hard to make a living in, in a physical world. There may be some arbitrage in their skills that they can bring it over here, take advantage of that. Clearly, you've put in lots of work, you and Bobby in the team. How much of it is, and I ask this because I love how I built this, they always ask this question, how much of it is attributed to hard work and how much to luck? Yeah, I think a uh, large majority comes from luck. Just being at the right place at the right time and things just fall through by itself, by chance. That's definitely one thing I attribute for. Like, picking the right industry itself makes sense already. I think the other thing regarding work would be staying in the game as long as possible. So I think one of the things that we've been doing in order to capitalize on that luck, appear at the right timing, at the right time, as many occasions as possible to just keep doing what you're doing, stick to it, don't worry about what's going to happen too far down the road, just think about the day-to-day, just stay alive and know later, if, if your teaching is correct, the, the opportunity will fall onto your side. So it's definitely going to be some hard work, maybe 20%, to at least open yourself to the opportunity and then 80% is luck. So like, put you on the launch pad in terms of the outcome and the impact that you're looking for. Do you feel like you have found your why? Yeah, I'm still very much involved in a lot of the day-to-day operations in CoinGecko and I still think that CoinGecko is the best idea I have. I'm still working on it. 
seeing that there's a lot of things that needs to be done in space in terms of infrastructure, helping to develop the missing pieces so that when the, the Web3 world or the metaverse does happen down the road, we have all these learnings from the past. We take for granted the things that our ancestors have created, like let's say, you know, measurements and things like that. I think these are things that are missing in the Web3 space, like how do you evaluate whatever, right? And I think like being in the seat of running Kwanjiko, I think like, like I found my why in terms of why I'm doing this every day, right? Which is to to introduce all these concepts that I think down the road, the, the people who spend their time in Web3 world will be able to use that and, and get on with things. That being said, like, knowing also like in the past years of my life, my why tends to change over time. So maybe in the next few years, I may discover something interesting or something that I've, I'm excited about and I may have a new why. It just appears like iteration of what you encounter in life that you, your why will change. What kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? Building back on what I just mentioned on, on the wise, right? So I think if, if that turns out well, I think what will happen is having the infrastructure. Every time when I ask myself, like, am I done with Quiet If I look at the space right now, there's still so much more to be done. And the things that I'm doing or have done in the last few years, those are small, small little things that I hope to leave behind. That becomes a learning point for someone new that comes to the space to just pick that up and, you know, do something better potentially. So I think that those are everything that I do. Hopefully that becomes useful for someone else when they pick it up. Down the road, I really hope that whatever that we have done to be helped pave pave the way for that kind of experience for people to socialize, play, have fun, make a living. And there's this borderless internet world that you have digital property rights as well. It's what I'm looking at. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? I think two things. One is adaptability. So for anyone that's gone through all kinds of lives, I'm sure they think there are difficult times, good times, uh, more so the difficult times, right? That's the best opportunity to adjust and, and they come back stronger. Most people see that times are tough. Maybe I, I'm not cut for that, but if you go through it and you find yourself like, hey, you know, you, you're just able to do it regardless of your background. Maybe you don't have preconceived but it's fine as well. You'll be able to do it. So I think like being able to adapt to change to anything that happens around you, that's the most important attribute because that means whatever happens in the future, 10 years from now, you are fine. The other one is once you have found something that you really believe in, just keep doing it for an extended period of time, right? Don't, don't just give up within a short period of time, like two weeks or a month or a year. As long as you get small ways and positive feedback, then put it up to get you going. Along the way, challenges come, you adapt to it. Just having these two allow you to get up to a certain stage and maybe from there you'll find out other attributes that you can bring into to more of the two things that anyone will need to have to you know get to the next step. And where can people go to connect with you, TM, and also CoinGecko? You can check out CoinGecko at coinco.com. Otherwise, I'm on Twitter at TM Lee and feel free to reach out to me if you have any thoughts and happy to chat as well. And that was the end of episode 90. The show notes and transcript can be found at sodismywide.com forward slash 90. And stay tuned for next week because we'll be featuring another Malaysian who's the country manager for a legal cryptocurrency exchange and as a very well-known blogger known as Mr. Stingy. So do stick around, subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already, and see you next Sunday.